Welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm Warren Coughlin, founder of this podcast and business coach to ethical entrepreneurs who want to build a business that matters. In short, I help you end chaos and gain control over your business so that you predictably and reliably achieve the profits, the lifestyle, and the impact you strive for through a team you can trust without the stress and frustration. When you experience this, you're more confidently able to make the world or just your corner of it a bit of a better place. At The Spotlight, we believe that every entrepreneur has a unique message that can positively impact the world and inspire others to do the same. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm your host, Warren Coughlin, and today is going to be a very, very interesting conversation. I'm actually really excited about it because it's not exclusively, but it's going to raise some questions or some topics that have been in the news and that people have been hearing more about lately, even though they've been sort of muttering around out there for a while in NFTs. And our guest today is the founder and CEO of DreamView, uh, Nathaniel Hunter. And uh, do, do, can I call you Nathaniel or do you like Nate? Nathaniel works fine, Warren. Nathaniel's awesome. So welcome to the welcome to the spotlight. Thank you. Happy to be here. So before we get into the world of NFTs, just tell me a little bit about what DreamView is and where it started. And even, you know, no one is going to be able to tune into this if they are seeing the video version of it and not comment on your background, which yes. is all the, all the Marvel. So either about DreamView or about your all things superhero, give us a little start there. <laughs> I'll mix it a little bit. So my background has been... Um, in film and visual effects, in television, uh, film, commercial, TV, and also in games for close to 30 years now. Uh, prior to that, I was an aspiring comic book artist. I've uh, been big into comics since the age of three. Owned my own comic book store at 17 to 18. So I got A's in my economics class in both junior and senior year of high school, which was great. Um, but very passionate about content itself and content creation. And that's really where DreamView came from, was looking at content creation uh, first from a very pragmatic view with suppliers and manufacturers from the e-commerce world. So if you think of all of these products that sell on Amazon and Wayfair and Overstock and Alibaba and all of these myriad of sites out there, um, they all have businesses and brands behind them. And those businesses and brands need to create content. They need to take their products do a photo shoot, do a commercial, do some sort of marketing representation of their product. And the cost of doing that has been fairly high. And so using all of our skills that we've built over the years, um, DreamView put together a system and a platform that includes technology as well as workflows for us to take all of the stuff that we've done for visual effects, whether it's creating King Kong or creating the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or whatever it might be, which our staff has all worked on that stuff. Um, oh, cool. It, creating all of these individual products now and making them photo real for clients at a cost-effective way and doing that at scale. So we can build tens of thousands of these products a month and then basically bridge those into photorealistic environments and backdrops so we can speed up their time to market um, and getting their products launched as well as reduce their costs and then increase their conversion rates so they can actually sell more because the quality is so good. So that and was is that, just out of curiosity, because people in the animation world, I've done a little bit of work in that space, but it's there is a bit of a black box in there. So when people hear like products going, like you said, it's typically much more expensive. Like what what makes creating a visual image or representation on something like Alibaba? What would traditionally why would it be that much more expensive? 
Well, it, it wasn't initially because people were, uh, and if you know people who have been around for a little while, under, remember when you first went on Amazon and stuff, you click on the image to see a bigger picture of it. And it was literally just that image blown up. So it looked horrible. And, <laughs> you know, these, these e-commerce giants are requiring more of their suppliers and manufacturers and the suppliers and manufacturers have more competition. So you have to step up your quality to be able to compete. And to step up the quality means you have to get better representations of your product into an image or a video. And the only way to do that is by spending more money. Traditionally, you know, a lot of these companies might have done photo shoots inside of their back office, right? Where they took a product and some janky lighting and, you know, used an iPhone or a DSLR and put it up on, on their e-commerce site. But now you have bigger players that are doing tens or even hundreds of millions a month in revenue across these things suddenly they have to step up their game because now they're competing with them where they're spending millions of dollars a quarter on doing photo shoots, for instance. But those photo shoots themselves, the logistics of doing them, you have to have photographers, set designers, grips, lighters, a space. You have to, people don't think about this stuff, but if you're doing like say furniture, you have to bring all that furniture to that location. You have to build it, you have to clean it, you have to manicure it, make sure it's perfect for the image. And then even afterwards, you have to touch it up with Photoshop and all this stuff. So it can be a logistical nightmare in terms of finding the space, booking the time. It can be months and months. And some of these companies want to get this stuff to market within weeks or even days. And that doesn't quite, you know, compute in terms of how do you do that at scale? You know, on one or two products, it's probably not such a big deal. But if you're selling two or 300 new products every quarter, which a lot of these bigger companies are, and even smaller companies are doing that. They're selling 50, 60 new products every three months. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you book that? How do you have all the logistics that kind of work out in your favor? And so is that what you look after? Yeah, and so what DreamView does is we work with brands to um, on the e-commerce side. So we have kind of three different divisions internally. We have our e-commerce, that's so called product, P-R-D-K-T. That is our product division. And we work with um, it, suppliers and manufacturers, anything from, you know, dozens of products all the way up through tens of thousands of products to help represent their stuff in CGI, but to the naked eye, it looks completely photoreal. So it's a one-to-one representation of what you would shoot in photography, but because we're doing it all on the computer, we can turn around the time in five to 10 times as fast as they would do it traditionally at a fraction of the cost. So suddenly we've just opened up a whole new tool, a tool chest for these brands to be able to create better images, more of them, because, you know, the more images that you look at when you're a consumer, the, the more likely you are to buy that product. You're like, oh, I like the way that looks in that living room, or I like the way that looks on that person or that mannequin, et cetera. And like, I'm going to purchase this through Amazon. And the more that represents the product, the more likely you are to keep it, because that's another problem in the space is that people will return these products because, ah, I thought it looked better in the picture or, you know, it looked horrible when I got it. It doesn't look exactly like what I bought. Right. So, so you have I- actually solved the, the, the eternal magical triangle of better, faster, and cheaper. Yeah. And usually we, we, people like say you got to, you can only choose two of those. Right. It's the Venn diagram. Right. And so yeah. you nailed all three. And not only do we think we've nailed all three, we think we've added a fourth, which is scale. Cause that's not something that usually goes into that. Like how much can you do at once? And so we decided, you know, price, quality, and time, all three of those things are cost, quality, and time are things that we attack, but we are also going to add a fourth, which is scale. How can you do that at a scale that makes sense, right? So if you're a company that has a thousand products, the typical would be, oh, that's going to take you nine months to 12 months to do. How can we do that in weeks, not months, not years? Now that's, 
I want to stop on that for a second. That I, I actually find that remarkable. You just you articulate it as if it's sort of a you know a given, which I guess it is in your business. But that's that is that triangle is one that most people have struggled with for a long time. It's and it's almost it's always regarded as a universal truth. So did you did you come to that by accident, or was that a strategic decision of saying we are going to tackle all four of those pieces? Very much strategic. Um, we look at the space and. Uh, at the time when we founded the company uh, almost four years ago now, we looked at how are we going, we can definitely do this on a per unit basis, right? So we can build an iPhone or this bottle or any of these products behind me here um, on an individual basis, um, but the cost is too much, right? We can do it fast enough almost and the quality we can definitely hit, you know, hands down, but how do we then, how do we speed it up so it can actually be faster and how do we reduce that cost so it can be affordable? And so we attacked it from that angle first, and then knowing that we would get this benefit, of, if we solved that triumvirate, we were going to get scale as part of it, because the only way to do it at the cost that we wanted to, and at the, uh, and the time we wanted to, is we had to build a structure. We had to build a platform to build it uh, or to, to deliver it. And the only way to do that was to also solve the scale problem at the same time. And so what we've built is a technology platform um, that's a worldwide platform. We partnered with Google and uh, it's going to be something that is right now we're keeping it to ourselves, but as we move through 22 next year and into 23, we're going to be releasing this as a public based uh, thing that any company can actually use to generate their content production. So it's, and will that, does, is there any risk of that from a competitive standpoint? Like it sounds like that's a competitive advantage right now. It is, it is. And there's, there's, there's not really risk. There's a lot of secret sauce that we have in it. And there's other people that are trying to do this as well. Um, just yeah. not in the same way that we are. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's also a massive market. I mean, there's 300 million, uh, uh, 300 million products. Let that sink in for a minute of new products every year that are currently, there's over 2 billion products that are, that are served up on e-commerce yearly, the unique products that are sold across the Amazon has over a billion products that they sell that are truly unique SKUs just on Amazon alone. And that, you know, that mostly caters to North America and South America, right? And, and a little bit around the rest of the world, but Alibaba's got, you know, a big reach and all these others. And so we're talking about numbers that if- and So for people who don't know, Alibaba is based in, in China, right? Uh, China, but they also service India and other, yeah, the-, the, the yeah. Countries so they're they're like an Amazon, but in the Eastern yeah. markets. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah. They're 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 Alibaba Day. I think beats out Amazon Day in terms of just the amount of revenue generated in a single twenty four hour period by like three times. And so it's, it's an incredible powerhouse of a, you know more of a, a, a this e commerce brand. But they all have the same problem, which is to they have competition, right? Um, all of these suppliers and manufacturers that sell through them are competing with each other. How do I get? You know, it's the same problem as you have when you walk into a supermarket. Who's got the shelf space in the most desirable place, right? That's right. Who's going to yeah. get marketed the product the best? And then which one is the one that, you know, if you're standing in front of seven products that are all similar, which one's the catch your eye? Which one is the one you're going to purchase because of that emotional connection you have with it? So what your representation of that product is, is really important in the e-commerce space. And then let's shift over a little bit. So you've, you've moved into the NFT space. Um, and just for those who don't know, I mean, it's rooted in the blockchain, but if anybody's listening goes, what the heck is NFT? What, what do the letters mean? And what actually is it? And what's the nature of the opportunity? Yeah, so NFTs uh, stand for non-fungible token. And probably the easiest way to explain it is a, what is a fungible asset? A fungible asset is 
let's say our currency, you know, the US dollar. And so if I, if I have a $50 bill and Warren, you have a $50 bill, we can trade them back and forth. They're equal to each other. They're exactly worth the same thing. Um, Bitcoin is the same way. If I had one Bitcoin, you have one Bitcoin and we trade them back and forth, it's the same thing. A non-fungible token is essentially, it's a protocol that they built on top of cryptocurrency that says this token is actually unique from all others in the space, right? And so now if you and I both have an NFT and we trade them, they might be worth the same thing, but they are actually totally different. They're unique in their own respect in the world. And they're only that one, that one NFT sits across potentially billions or even trillions of them in the future, that that thing is totally unique. So the value of that can be then attached to something else. And you see it all the time with uh, people have probably seen the board apes and the Beeple stuff, you know, $69 million and board apes that have done 500 million in, you know, the, the, the last number of months in terms of sales. Those are NFTs. It's essentially a smart contract. It's a contract that says that you own this very unique thing in the digital universe that can't be broken unless you sell it. And so it can also not be copied. So you might be able to copy the content, right? So it's the, it's the concept of owning a piece of artwork. I don't have anything sitting around me right now that I can grab, but um, if I own the piece of artwork, like on this Stan Lee book here, yeah. and I had the only copy of that and I had an NFT, I would be the sole owner of that thing. Right now, other people, it's, it's like having artwork in the real world. There might be prints of it that are out there, but who's the originator? Who's the owner of that would be myself. And therefore, that lends value to that thing, much like an art collection. That's really and then can you do can you do limited editions of it? Like, sure, you could have. You know, um, I have the original NFT, just like you would have the original Mona Lisa, and then you have prints of the Mona Lisa and multiple different prints, and those are all done in different styles or sizes that have their own limited runs. And obviously, they have some value, but probably not as much value. Most definitely not as much as the original, right? The one of one, that unique thing, and so. What that allows you to do is it allows you to, unlike current way of transferring artwork back and forth in a digital world where you're like, hey, here's this artwork, I really like it, and I'm going to send it to you as a JPEG, suddenly it's, you know, you can still do that in the NFT space, but who is the owner of that original IP? You know, if, if I hold the NFT, that smart contract that's connected to that JPEG that says I own that then that means that I'm the owner on this planet, right? And then it's in a digital space. So that ownership is locked into the blockchain itself. And so- So sort of like have, a, an original Babe Ruth baseball card or something. Yeah, correct. But like, if you look at like original Babe Ruth, what has to happen? There's a company called Heritage Auctions that has to validate that that's an actual Babe Ruth and they have to grade it. And, and one, that process is expensive and two, you have to go through that because otherwise it's just my word. I say this is a Babe Ruth and I have his signature on it. Who's to say that I'm not a liar, right? And that I did right. it myself and I, I sell this to you and I sell this to 10 other people for the same price. Right. These do is they allow a brand to mint. They can basically, minting a token on the blockchain means that they create a digital stamp, right? They mint this token, they create the, uh, the smart contract and that NFT is now minted by, let's say, LeBron James. LeBron James mints an NFT, and that NFT is connected to maybe a physical pair of shoes that he owns or a digital piece of artwork or whatever it might be. And now when you buy that from LeBron James, now you have validation that that came from him. So you don't have to have an outside party like Heritage or somebody else saying, is this a real LeBron? 
you can trace it. If I'm the seventh owner that's traded hands six or seven times, I can trace that all the way back to LeBron James, right? I know that this is a valid piece, even though it's changed hands so many times. And that's the problem with collectibles in the current and artwork to that extent as well. You know, if you found a piece of artwork today, uh, say at a at an auction or maybe at someone's you know estate sale. And you're like, hey, this looks like an original Picasso, but it's probably not, right? But if you had a digital fingerprint of that all the way back to Picasso when he first minted that painting, now you would have validation, right? Otherwise, you have to go through a whole slew of <laughs> really expensive. So stuff. for you, so for Dreamview, is this is this now an exercise where you are creating your own content and making them into NFTs, or is this a service where you are helping oh, yeah. others create NFTs? Yeah, we're we're really more focused on the pragmatic approach of dealing with brands and individuals, whether celebrities, uh, large brands that are looking to get into the space and taking the content engine we've created for the e-commerce side. Prior to NFTs, we've actually built um, an animation engine as well as an engine that creates other types of creative content, right? For like commercials and to that respect, NFTs. So on the NFT side, what we do is we work with brands to come up with a strategy and approach, and we build out that creative content that can then be minted into something that is uh, of value in the NFT space. And so what does that business opportunity look like for you? Um, currently, we're working with, uh, I can say, you know, I've got to really think about which one's under, NFT, under NDA I can talk about. Um, we're working with dozens and dozens of brands. Sorry, new baby in the house here. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we're working with dozens and dozens of brands right now to represent their product as NFTs. Hold on one second. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> baby, baby it's always great to humanize a conversation with a child. <laughs> you have no concept of like time or what you're doing. Um, we are working with all these brands to represent their, their products, come up with a strategy, come up with the creative content, the approach in terms of what is the creative direction of that? How is this going to be launched over a period of time? Uh, because if you look into the NFT space, it's not like a, a one and done. This is another way to um, interact with consumers and interact with fans, right? In terms of how do you get someone to own a part of this brand, whether that is um, something in the space that is more creative or it's something in the space that's more celebrity based, right? Or a mixture of both, uh, you know, NFTs were really started and made popular by kind of the art world and the music world. But as everyone knows, you know, NBA Top Shot really kind of blew the roof off of it when, you know, people were buying uh, NFTs of videos of basketball dunks for $100,000, $200,000, and then sitting and holding on top of those things. So, right. you know, it's there's a lot of different angles that people come at it from, and we're working with dozens of brands right now to represent their products in the upcoming future. So are you creating like a marketplace? We are working with um, one of our investors in our company and a, a strategic partner of ours, Infinite, um, they are actually, we've been working with them to create multiple marketplaces. So there are these white labeled products for a lot of big brands that are gonna be launching this year um, that are more, you have OpenSea, which is the big, that's the big kahuna of the NFT space right now. And they are kind of a catch all for everything. Um, whereas we're working with large brands that want to differentiate and, and focus just on their products in the NFT space and have people be more of a destination NFT site for these individual products. And so that's what we're, 
we're focused on that as well as working with individual brands. We release on a bunch of different marketplaces, but really trying to hone in on what we do well, which is work with brands and come up with strategy and then focus them in on their own kind of white labeled approach to this, to this world. So I, I love the story and, you know, part, part of the purpose of this podcast is to both educate and inspire other entrepreneurs who want to make a difference in the world to, to get there. But one of the things I, I, I don't like to draw to this is just in both cases, both your, your original content part of your business and this was the strategic thinking behind both of them. Like while I was asking questions about marketplaces and all of this, I'm trying to sort of illustrate that in both parts of that, you, you seem to have taken a very, very thoughtful, strategic focus on where you want to position yourself in the market, like the choosing those four distinguishing features on the content side on this saying you're going to do marketplaces, not necessarily going after the big player. You seem to, so what allows you either from your own personal background or disposition, like what gives you that either instinct or facility to <laughs> not be reactive, but be very proactive about where you want to play? Experience and, and having been reactive, that's that's a part of it, right? Is that um, this is not my first rodeo as an entrepreneur. I've been doing it for, uh, well, for my whole life, but in, in earnest, I mean, this is my fourth or you know, fifth company now that I've owned over the past 35 years. And so it's a lot of experience in going into it. And, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs jump into the space, uh, whether it's NFTs or anything else, and they have big, big visions, big creative visions about what they can do, what they can bring to the market. But then there's a real business sense that you only get, it, it's like having a child, the baby in the background tied, tied all together. You know, people can tell you what it's like to have a child, but until you have one, it's impossible to know, right? And it's the same thing with being an entrepreneur. Everyone has advice, but you can only take in so much of that advice before you have to step into those shoes yourself. And one of the things that most entrepreneurs learn early on, or some don't, and they continue to go through this process, is this desire to create something that is totally unique, but you have to be pragmatic. Is there a customer out there that wants to buy this? Is there a marketplace? Is there, they call it product market fit. Right. Out of the space, right? Do you have product market fit with what you're building? And in many other previous businesses, it was, oh my God, we're going to create this amazing thing, but we were too early for creating, like we were doing augmented reality in a previous company before Apple had even announced the augmented reality functions on the phone, right? And, and we built it and it was amazing. And it was taking all of this visual effects stuff that we had done from film and pairing it into an iPhone back in 2012 and 2013, but people weren't using phones that way. It wasn't something that had been exposed to them. So it was too early. There wasn't, there wasn't a good product market fit for what we were building. Right. So we went into DreamView with a real product market fit. Here are, here are brands that have this very real need. And how can we disrupt that need and create something that is of value to them? How can we make something that they can actually use today? And then while we're doing that, we can also build out this future functionality that we're envisioning for the metaverse and these other different things for tomorrow, but without kind of trying to leapfrog all of that, right? So being pragmatic about your approach is, is a real key differentiator in terms of how we're approaching this versus how I've approached other businesses and how I've seen some others talking about big, you know, pie in the sky, blue ideas. I try to bring them back down to earth and like, what is like, who are you going to sell this to? What's your pragmatic approach to making this create revenue for, you know, your company and create value for your investors and for your customers. That's good to remember each time, you know, I, I had a business back in the early days of the new media and, you know, I was, I was constantly being pitched on 
because I was in charge of sort of new business development on new products and services and things. And you'd always say, I'd always say like, what's, what's the business behind it? And people would say, well, you're crazy. It's the stock play. And I was like, no, you got to have a business underneath it. <laughs> and every time there's a new technology, there's a wave of that, that it's new technology and it's just going to be a stock play. And it doesn't matter whether there's a business underneath it. And that always winds up falling. That house of cards always collapses. My, my favorite to use in that respect is the, you know, the gold rush of 1849. Like everyone talks about the gold rush, but what they don't talk about is who really became the, the big businesses out of that? Well, it was the people supplying the pickaxes and all of the supplies. That was a true business. The, the gold itself was speculative, right? Yeah. So to go out and rush out after something that's speculative that you don't know if you're going to be successful or not is not a very sound business approach, right? Like it's with great risk comes great reward. Sure. And you might be that person, um, but you can't walk into business thinking that way. You have to walk into business thinking, what's my pragmatic approach? Like, how can I, and the people capitalized on that were the ones who actually made out the best because whether people won or lost, they won because they were supplying all of the, you know, the waiting boots and the pickaxes and, and the sifters and everything else. And those companies that built all of that are now some of the biggest companies, uh, you know, in the U S that actually provided that there was massive corporations built out of just the simplest little thing that was providing a service. Right. That's right. That's right. Now, you, in terms of the, the kind of impact you want to have in the world, you, you mentioned to me you know, previously that you really wanted to kind of democratize the world of content creation. Can you just, like, what does that actually look like and why is that an important, an important impact to pursue? Yeah, the, what we're doing is the world of artistry, and especially in CGI, it's very complicated. It's, there's a lot of moving parts, you know, even in creating... Uh, people who haven't dealt with it don't necessarily understand it, that to create one simple thing inside of film uh, for a visual effects movie or inside of a TV show or even for a print ad, there's a lot of work that goes into it. So that's why the credits list on a film is so massively long, right? But there's, there's ways to chip away at that complexity and build uh, stuff that is actually more um, expandable, that, that can actually be, uh, that can take advantage of technology and, and bring down the cost of that and, and make the tools a little bit more available to the average person. And what we're trying to do is, is as DreamView, trying to build out a technology platform that allows us to put out free training materials for people all around the world that can take polytechnical um, courses from us. And those polytechnical courses can be on how to build this bottle, right? How do you build this bottle in CGI? And it's up to you to take the time to learn how to do it with our training course. But then once you do, and you've actually produced that product and you've produced another type of product and another one, you can actually get that certification that, hey, I know how to build this now. And we have tens of thousands of brands that you know um, might use those same sorts of skills that now we can put into an open marketplace and say, brand A, B, or C is looking to have this built. And now we can connect those artists that have the certification to building those products. And so we've created a platform that allows us to combine and connect these individuals with the request and supply and demand, right? And so yeah. what we're doing is taking out all the traditionally really hard stuff in CGI, the portions that are very hard to approach, all of the administration of it. And we built a platform that just allows the artists to truly just create. And they don't have to worry about where all this stuff goes. They don't have to worry about what it's called. Uh, you know, they don't have to worry about the software license and everything else that's all handled by our platform. 
And so um, what we allow is the artist to just do the work. And so it can actually reduce the cost for our clients, uh, increase the quality because now they're not worrying about, did I send the right thing? Did I push the right data? Did I call it the right thing? Am I doing, am I working off the right reference that the client sent me? All that stuff is taken care of by us. And that allows them to produce higher quality product that can go out into the marketplace. And that the nice piece about that too, then is it's making, you know, I always think one of the, one of the ways to make the world a better place is to get to, to allow the un, previously untapped potential to realize its potential. There are people all over the world who don't, don't have, they're highly, highly talented artists or thinkers or natural engineers or whatever it may be. But if they don't access, have access to the channels, the rest of us never get the benefit of their talents. Right. And, and that's, that's something that we've, you know, we, we currently have um, a little over 240 people working in 24 countries around the world with us right now. And that's growing every month. And we're going to be, as we end 21 and go into 22, we're going to be amplifying that even more and making it available to more people as we go public with this. Um, and are they, are they employees or are they, are they part of a marketplace? They're part of a marketplace for the most part, right? Uh, they're a mixture. We have employees that are both in the continental U.S. here. Uh, as well as people around the world that are employees. And then the rest are project-based gig workers that come on when they want to um, and work, you know, much like people hop into an Uber and there's that driver there, that person is determining their own time and how long they want to work. So that's really the core of what we're trying to build is a democratization engine that you called it earlier for content creation. So we're making the tools available to the artists and the availability to the clients to actually have a centralized place to put this work out there so that we can give them the ability to, in their own time, right, pick up as much or as little as they want to and create some. So if you live in Argentina or you're in Singapore or you're in India, wherever you might be, you can actually hop onto this platform and start working with us in a way that you can actually create content and start to generate revenue for yourself. Nice. All right. I got to... I know we only have a few minutes left, so um, I have what I call the, the rapid fire, you know, business questions. Um, so I'm just going to ask you to sort of complete these sentences, if you like. So the decision that helped me get where I am is? Uh, or was? Was, yeah, to, to be more pragmatic about my approach in, in, in not just in business, but in life itself, right? To, to really sit down and, and weigh weigh the consequences of every decision. And if I had to do it over, I would? Uh, I would have invested in Apple a lot earlier. And <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, buddy. <laughs> Gotten into Bitcoin when it was like $3. Uh, no, um, if I had to do it over again, honestly, I wouldn't do anything differently because I wouldn't be where I'm at today. I'm a big believer that you are where you, where you get to because of everything that preceded it. If you change even one thing, the butterfly effect, right? Yep. Wouldn't be where you're at today. And so I'm, I'm pretty pleased where I'm at right now. Yeah. I, I often say that sometimes our, our best gifts come in really ugly wrapping paper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the days I enjoy the most, I am. Uh, that's a, that's a good one, actually. On the days I enjoy the most, I'm busy because, you know, um, uh, I idle hands with the devil's play thing. I, I love I love keeping myself busy, and the more busy I am, the happier I am. It's an odd, maybe say to masochistic a little bit, but that's I'm happiest when I'm when I'm just working constantly. So nice. 
And one aspect of running a business I have yet to master. Uh, the, 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 I'm, it's always a work in progress. I don't think I'll ever master it, but it's the stuff that no one tells you about and it's personality management, right? As you build a company, no one tells you that you have to be a psychologist first and foremost <laughs> to work together, even internally inside of one company, right? And so it's just like every day trying to get better at that, trying to understand, you know, how I can bring the best out of each person that works with me and works for me to give them the tools that they need to succeed. And by doing that, it makes me succeed. And so that's a lot of psychological stuff that has to go into that as well as approach that constantly working on. And my most successful form of marketing is? Um, interpersonal, I think, interpersonal marketing. So there's social marketing and everything else, obviously, but the interpersonal marketing of just connecting with people, you know, connecting with people with like-minded and even non-like-minded, trying to understand other people's approach to it helps you to be a better marketer in general um, in any platform. A platform is just a tool at the end of the day, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or, you know, Discord or whatever it might be. If you don't have those interpersonal skills of how to talk to people and how to work with them, you're not going to be a very good marketer. Right on. The problem I would most like to solve in my business? Um, growth. Growth is tough. Like growth is, is probably the hardest thing that we're dealing with right now is how do we, how do we grow at a global scale that we want to? And that, that is a, that's a tough nut for any company to crack, much less one that's completely virtual and constantly growing at the pace that we are. Okay. The last, the last two questions are at a, at a personal level. Some, the first one's a tough one. Uh, one personal quality that I most had to improve or overcome to become successful. It was trying to be too nice. Trying to give everyone, you know, it, that was definitely, I, I, my personality is the type that is uh, give everyone, you know, this big chance to do things um, and, and being able to cut things off when, when they weren't working out, right? Because I'm, I'm the, the nice guy and I always want to see people succeed. So it's like that giving everyone the second and third and fourth chance when, you know, as I've learned throughout time, you have to be. I hate to use the word cutthroat, but you do have to be very business oriented in terms of your approach. You, there is no, you have to be very clear. And part of that is the communication for me, right? Like if I, and that's usually what it comes down to. I didn't communicate what I wanted from that person in the beginning in the correct way. And so that's the thing that I need to work on constantly is making sure that what I communicate and what is resonated back is what I'm looking for, because that only allows them to be that much more successful and what I expect, right? And that's, yeah, that's my takeaway. And what's one personal quality, no false humility, uh, that most contributed to your success? Um, my desire to, to take in information. Um, I read probably two to 500 blogs a day fully, and I browse through 3,000 or so across multiple channels. And uh, I'm just, I'm like a walking... I just I have to take in information and I use that information in my ability to sell things and my ability to understand things. I just voracious with that. And so that is my one quality I love. It's like asking anything. I probably know something about it. And if I don't, I'm going to, after this call, go and find out everything I need to know about that thing. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. That's awesome. Now, where can people find you or find out more about DreamView? Uh, dreamview.com. So just as it's spelled, D-R-E-A-M-V-I-E-W.com. Um, and there's plenty of information there. 
Uh, you can also go and hit me up on, on LinkedIn. Uh, and it's just there, Nathaniel Hunter on LinkedIn. You'll see me as the CEO of Greenview. And is there anything you'd like folks to know? Any, any other piece you want to share make sure it gets out there? Um, it's a really crazy wild world that we're entering in right now, more so than ever before. And I think, you know, if, if you look back at when the iPhone was released in, in 07 and then they released the apps in 08, and then what has happened since then, it's been a, a really remarkable change in the culture of the entire world, the entire planet, right? In terms of yep. how we interact together. And I think that we're going to be seeing over the next 10 years, you know, this is even more than 10 years for the iPhone that changed the course of history. I think over the next 10 years, this concept of the metaverse and NFTs and this decentralized way of doing things is going to change it even more dramatically. I think we're going to be uh, integrating in, in, in it's, it can be positive and negative at the same time, right? So just to be really aware that as we go into the future, that we don't lose ourselves in the process of doing it. Thank you very much, Nathaniel. This has been a very interesting conversation. I actually think, you know, you and I both spoke quickly through it, but there were there is a ton of gold. If an entrepreneur really wants to learn how to improve and to make uh, make an impact in the world, you shared a ton of great information. So I really appreciate it. Thanks, Warren. And, and I wish you I wish you great success with your platform. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Hi, it's Warren Coughlin here. Thank you so much for listening to the Business That Matters Spotlight. If you're a successful, values-driven entrepreneur who makes a difference while making a profit and you'd like to be on this program, please visit warrencoughlin.com slash podcast slash apply. That's warren, C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N.com slash podcast slash apply. If you got something out of this interview, would you do us a favor and share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Business That Matters Spotlight. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, warrencoglin.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, facebook.com slash a business that matters, and Instagram at warren.coglin. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.